You're welcome, Neil. This is hell. Live from the United States, where profits incentivize hate. This is hell. Luckily, here on This Is Hell, despite the content of our show, the guests we host, and the discussions we engage in, we very, very rarely are the targets of hatred. However, the reaction to the conversation we are about to play during today's Best of 2023 is the exception to the rule, and oddly, the negative response was from a libertarian. Months before everyone was talking about genocide, we were speaking with a genocide expert on, of all things, transgenderism. However, when you consider what our guests saw and heard at this year's Conservative Political Action Committee convention, it sure as hell sounds like the far right wants to end the existence of not only transgenderism, but everyone who happens to be transgender. Back in June, we spoke with anthropologist Alex Hinton, who wrote the Sapiens article, Two Myths Fueling the Conservative Right's Dangerous Transphobia. And I figured a conversation about just two myths would be a very short conversation and that people might think that it was just kind of facile, if you will. That's easy in French. So, uh... That wasn't the case at all. It was a very engaging conversation that went on for quite a while and was very in-depth, and our listeners apparently loved it. Thanks to listener Braden S. for nominating our interview with Alex as one of the best of 2023, and thanks to me for seconding that conversation, and I believe Will even thirded it. As for that conversation on Twitter about the interview that we were about to play, we've never shared it before on the show, but... Here's the hate that was spewed at us following our conversation with Alex Hinton on myths of transgenderism. The commenter comes out swinging, starting with, This guy's a typical Marxist, and he wonders why we right-wingers despise y'all on the left. My gosh, you all suck. I love how it's just an ad hominem attack the whole time. Oh, wait for it. Wait for it. It gets worse and worse and worse. (laughs) You are complete bigots against anyone who doesn't mouth your agenda. Go away. Get the hell out of my Twitter timeline. Uh, Eric, and then in all caps, libertarian. So I assume that's uh, his position. Eric can mouth my agenda. (laughs) Eric, I assume that your last name isn't libertarian and don't spell it in all caps on a regular basis, but that you are stating that you are a libertarian. So I asked Alex, I asked uh, Eric how Alex believing transgender people deserve the liberty and freedom to be who they are and how that is in opposition to libertarianism. And if he knew what liberty really means, Eric the Libertarian replied with this, with his bona, bona fides. Libertarian, he writes that Liber- I am Libertarian Party's top nationwide petitioner from 2004 to 2008. Feel free to verify via Bill Redpath, whoever the hell that is. Campaign field director for Ron Paul for Congress, 1995. Founder Libertarian wing of the Republican Party, 1990. Congressman Ron Paul, senior aide, U.S. House of Reps, 1996 to 2003. Taxation is theft. Don't tax me, bro. Libertarians are really cute. (laughs) They don't know anything. No. They pretend they they know everything, and they always think that they are the smartest people in the room, and they are the dumbest. Yeah. (laughs) 
For those of you who do not know, and I would assume that's everybody listening, Bill Redpath is a libertarian from Illinois who repeatedly runs for office and just as repeatedly loses while getting very, very few votes. So keep in mind, the person who hated that we dispelled myths about transgenderism is a real deal, top of the party libertarian, because not only do I doubt he wants people to have liberties, his simplistic understanding of what Marxism is, is mind-boggling, yet it also is very expected from someone who uses libertarian as a guise to hide their transphobia and whatever hatred seems to be reinforcing their fascism. So after asking Eric the Libertarian how he can be libertarian and against the liberties of other to which he responded with his resume, which is not what I was requesting, <laughs> I asked if he knew what a Marxist is as the way this whole exchange began was with him saying Alex Hinton, our guest the interview will be playing shortly, was a Marxist for dispelling transgender myths embraced by the far right. Eric the Libertarian responded, what's a Marxist? Anyone left of a conservative. Oh, so it's just a directional definition. <laughs> exactly. Also, these directions on the political spectrum just exist objectively. <sighs> if Eric is representative of all libertarians, and probably is, not only do they oppose liberty, but all they know about Marxism is it's a label used to describe the left and nothing more. Libertarians who always think they are the smartest people in the room are apparently the most clueless. So I said that it does not sound like he knows what Marxism is or what the liberty part of libertarian stands for. And Eric the Libertarian countered, uh, you sure about that? Again, Libertarian Party member since 1985, served on Libertarian National Committee 1987 to 88, Libertarian delegate to three national conventions, Ron Paul's travel aid, 1988 Libertarian for President campaign. Wait, there's more. You clearly do not know what liberty is. So why are you why why are you here? Uh, America's founding fathers established this country to be a libertarian society. They hated socialism. They wanted maximum freedom. You should get out, move to Venezuela. Mm. I explained that could not have, they could not have, the Founding Fathers could not have hated socialism because, well, Karl Marx was not born until 1818, long after the Founding Fathers were establishing this country, and the Communist Manifesto was not written until 30 years later. The Founding Fathers would also not know of libertarianism as it was first developed as a term within metaphysics in 1789, but not as an understood political theory until the mid-20th century. Besides, at the heart of libertarian libertarianism is its core value, which is liberty. And Eric the Libertarian, according to his resume, as an opposition, is in opposition to the liberty of people who are trans. When I mentioned this to Eric, he posted, you are blocked. Bye. <laughs> so I said, you're welcome. But I was not yeah. yet, in fact, blocked because Eric had one last comment. Oh, please. Did you seriously friggin' just say that? Tell me you didn't say that. My gosh, you have just lost the internet for millennium. Okay. <laughs> that's got to be... The, then he says, that's got to be the stupidest thing I've ever seen on Twitter or any other platform every, everywhere. All because I said, you're welcome to a libertarian who was within the highest reaches of the political party's organization and yet did not know libertarianism had anything to do with liberty 
believed that liberty was only for binary heterosexuals who happened to be white, thought the Founding Fathers were libertarians and anti-socialists before either concept existed, and believed the definition of Marxist was anyone who is left of conservative, which would include centrist liberals, and I guess that explains why Fox News continually calls Joe Biden a Marxist. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz, producing is Will Ippen. Will, anything new about you? Uh, Eric's new about me. <laughs> <laughs> He's what happens when uh, bratty teenage libertarians uh, don't outgrow the, the you know that, that fessy old worldview, as you say. Exactly. And the other turn thing- Turn into a cranky old geezer. How does, uh, how does Twitter slash X- throttle us yet eric the libertarian yeah. is getting our posts i don't know man it's so it's that a strange land i'm starting to starting to think that that algorithm might be a little bit better than i thought it was yeah, maybe. if more libertarians are getting to see our stuff that's fantastic we were going for the neo-nazis but we'll take the libertarians sure it's it's, yeah. uh, it's a short step it's a slope from one to the other i know there's a uh, that venn diagram is tightening <laughs> very much so this is hell has been named a finalist in the chicago reader best of 2023 readers poll as Chicago's best podcast. Also, me, your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming podcast host Chuck Mertz, has been nominated as a finalist in the same poll as best radio DJ. Thanks to everyone who nominated us. We truly appreciate your support. Now you can vote for This Is Hell as best podcast and me, Chuck Mertz, as best radio DJ under the City Life category at chicagoreader.com slash best. And congratulations to Carrie's Lounge, the bar downstairs from us, that has shown so much support for This Is Hell over the years, hosting our weekly office hours, meet and greets that are really drinking things, and our annual summer anniversary party and art show, as well as our holiday office party, which is happening this Wednesday, if you're listening to the live stream, that's tomorrow, December 20th on Winter Solstice Eve. Vote for Carrie's as Best Dive Bar and it is best neighborhood bar and as someone from the neighborhood i've met many of my neighbors here and best beer garden and if you want to know why it is chicago's best beer garden just drop by during office hours or our annual holiday office party that's happening on wednesday so if you want to really get under the skin of corporate media and their paid minions vote for a completely listener supported this is hell as best podcast and me chuck mertz as best radio dj under the city life category at chicagoreader.com slash best if you want to show your appreciation for all of what carrie's lounge does for us vote for carrie's as best neighborhood bar best dive bar and best beer garden at the same place Again, that's Carrie's Lounge, C-A-R-Y apostrophe S Lounge. Will, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, if you had to relive 2023 all over again, what would be the thing you would dread living through again the most? We will share your, oh my God, my hernia surgery. Oh man. It's got to yeah. be up there. It's a no-brainer for you this uh, year. Bursa sack. Yeah. Blowing up twice now. I've, uh, it exploded again. Hey, man, go for the trifecta. Wisdom tooth extraction. Uh, getting COVID again. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the it's, been a great, it's been a great year for <laughs> You've me. You've been poked and prodded and cut open. Uh, 
So we will share your question from hell answers as posted on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can post it over on X at uh, This Is Hell Radio, post it in our Discord community, you can email it to us, uh, all the different places. Welcome to the Hellhole Facebook group uh, page, you can post it anywhere, any of those places, we'll be sharing those with you on air shortly. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner, following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. Will, what's Jeff talking about this week? Jeff has an attack of the jollies. <laughs> I assume there is a tank of pure oxygen and a tank of nitrous oxide sitting next to each other that are part of getting the jollies. Oh, man, that sounds fun. Yeah. <laughs> it is fun. <laughs> oh, man. That is a brain-destroying combo. Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> Nothing like nitrous as a chaser for your pure oxygen. <laughs> Coming up, the far right believes a lot of myths about trans people, dangerous myths that condone acts of violence, even deadly violence. We'll share some of your answers to this week's question from Al. We'll have this week in Rotten History, and Will will tell us who is our next guest on tomorrow's edition of the Best of 2023. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to, this is hell, and there's nothing quite like the annual CPAC convention when it comes to the abyss, that region of hell that is a bottomless pit of disinformation and straight-up lies meant to fuel hatred and even cause death. We told you so. This is hell. This is hell. We are very excited to have as our guest today anthropologist Alex Hinton, who wrote the Sapiens article, Two Myths Fueling the Conservative Rights Dangerous Transphobia. You can follow Alex on Twitter at Alex L. Hinton. Welcome to This Is Hell, Alex. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. This is exceptional writing, and uh, I'm very fascinated by your other books, uh, Why Do They Kill Cambodia in the Shadow of Genocide. All of your other books sound just absolutely fascinating. I have no idea how we haven't had you on the show before. Is there a schedule mix-up? Exactly the kind of stuff that we unfortunately cover here, or fortunately, I would say, uh, here on This Is Hell. You start by writing, The lights dim, trumpets sound, a rapid disco drumbeat begins to pulse around me, the Make America Great Again crowd leaps to their feet and dances in the aisles to YMCA, the Village People's 1978 hit classic. From experience, they know the song signals that former President Donald J. Trump will momentarily take the stage as the first speaker at the 2023 CPAC conference. That's the uh, Conservative Political Action Conference, and uh, but as cited, you know, it, uh, in, an encyclopedia of gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, and queer culture. The lyrics of YMCA promote the virtues of the Young Men's Christian Association, the YMCA. However, in gay culture, from which the image and music of the Village People came, the song was implicitly understood as celebrating YMCA's reputation as a popular cruising and hookup spot, particularly for the younger men to whom it was addressed. You add now as YMCA thunders in the cavernous hotel ballroom. I'm not sure what surprises me more. The fact that three nearby young men in blazers who have been hunched over their phones for hours have sprung to their feet, or the fact that a song many consider a gay anthem is being played for a group that is queer ambivalent at best and deeply transphobic at worst. What does that reveal to you about the crowd at the CPAC and their understanding of non-hetero culture when they are both homophobic and transphobic? Yet their leader, who holds those positions, uses a gay anthem as his walk-up music. Are they ignorant about gay culture or in denial of it? Is this an attempt to co-opt it? Or is YMCA 
some sort of dog whistle, turning the song into an anthem for homophobia? What does that reveal to you about the crowd at CPAC when the song that they're using as walk-up music for their keynote speaker is a gay anthem and he's just about to deliver a homophobic and transphobic address? Yeah, you know, that's it. And you asked a number of uh, a number of questions there. Uh, maybe to begin, I might just back up about, you know, how I, I arrived there and what I was sort of looking for. And then because I didn't really expect this totally. Um, so as you mentioned before, uh, you know, I have a book, uh, It Can Happen Here, White Power and the Rising Threat of Genocide in the U.S. Uh, that followed uh, far-right extremists, white power actors uh, sort of in the lead up to uh, the last election and in addition, you know, we had the insurrection and the book sort of anticipated that. Um, but it took seriously this question of what's the likelihood of political violence and the targeting of specific groups. Um, but most of those groups that I was focused on at the time uh, were non-white groups um, in terms of how the uh, white power rhetorics were playing out. Um, so I've, you know, so we had the election, you know, for those who supported Biden, everybody, uh, you know, it's a sigh of relief. Um, but of course, this continued. And one thing that emerged from uh, the Capitol insurrection uh, and that was there, I have a chapter in my book on white genocide, was that the rhetoric of white genocide began to go mainstream uh, under the rubric of replacement. So that term was always there, but it was more from Europe. Um, but the so when the states, what well, was often called white genocide, everyone started talking about replacement. And as I'm sure uh, you and your listeners are all familiar with, uh, this is very mainstream. So the idea of uh, demographic replacement is now something that's mentioned by politicians, uh, you know, on on the right, but increasingly uh, in terms of the right, more to the center even. Um, Tucker Carlson notoriously invoked and continues now on Twitter to invoke white replacement ideas. So it's a long way of saying that I went to CPAC. <clears throat> oh, and I, you know, there's one more backdrop, a huge proportion of the people who participated in or supported the Capitol insurrection said one of their primary concerns was replacement. There have been a number of polls that have taken place uh, of Republicans in particular that say like half of people are concerned about replacement. So I went to CPAC in part to sort of see what people were talking about and how prominent uh, the idea of replacement would be. Um, you know, and I'd read about CPAC uh, for many years uh, I never expected to go there, but that's certainly ahead of the next election cycle is a good place to take the pulse um, of the conservative right. Uh, so when I got there, again, I wasn't thinking about, of course, I was aware more broadly of attack uh, on uh, the transgender community, uh, the queer community, uh, and you know, within the field of genocide studies, um, people also are actually monitoring this in terms of what are called atrocity crimes, crimes against humanity, war crimes, genocide and ethnic cleansing and taking some of the assessment tools uh, to measure what's going on, but it's not really at the foreground. So when I got there, almost from the get-go, well, it was, I went to uh, a preliminary session that was a training session for uh, conservative activists, uh, you know, and I'm there as an anthropologist, listening in, and almost immediately 
uh, gender pronoun jokes began to emerge. And the gender pronoun jokes were continuous. Almost every uh, speaker had to signal uh, their anti trans, uh, anti-queer community stance by invoking gender pronoun jokes. Matt Gates uh, even said something like, oh, uh, you know, why was the balloon? This was right around the time of uh, the balloon from China. He said, why did it take so long to shoot it down while they were trying to go through the pronouns? Um, so this was nonstop. But also in that first training session, uh, immediately, uh, you know, one of the speakers said, well, I know what I'm a woman. I know what a woman is. And this was also a refrain uh, from, uh, so, you know, from the Supreme Court confirmation hearings uh, of uh, Supreme Court Justice uh, Jackson. This was something that was also repeatedly invoked. Uh, there were other themes that emerged. China, you know, the attack on China was mentioned continuously, even as virtually nothing was said about Putin or Russia. And I thought because of the sort of conservatives. Uh, historically, anti-communism, there would be stuff said about Russia and Putin. But again, that plays a bit into the white power themes as well, because he's valorized uh, by the white power community uh, border. I was paying a lot of attention to that. And the border issue was about cartels primarily uh, and fentanyl. Fentanyl was a you know a primary thing, and it came from China. as being early on; it was shipped over, and now it was being made by uh, the drug cartels. And then one thing that was interesting in terms of the shift in replacement discourse is that you know quote unquote illegal aliens. If we go back to 2018, 2019, with the notion of caravans, uh, the invasion, and of course this with the El Paso shooting. Uh, was one of the things where the manifesto of the shooter, he talked about, you know, I'm doing this because of uh, invasion across the border. But, you know, it was interesting that, but people coming across the border themselves were now being portrayed, portrayed as victims of the cartels. The deep state was a nonstop theme. I knew woke would be a theme, but I thought it would focus more on uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, tropes or critical race theory. But then, oh, and then the other one before we get to where, you know, our topic, the other one was, uh, you know, quote unquote, American Marxism. Uh, and this is a longstanding motif uh, that goes back to the Frankfurt School, Adorno, the authoritarian personality studies they did. It's you know, I, we can talk about that history if you want, but it's basically recast to say that everyone on the left, you know, they're a bunch of communists uh, and they're trying to uh, and Marxists and they want to transform the U.S. into a uh, socialist state. But then again, you know, within all of that, suddenly the focus on uh, the LGBTQ community and uh, transgender in particular Oh, almost overwhelmed all the other topics. Uh, and I should just note that this plays back into and directly the replacement direct, uh, discourse I was looking for because the idea of replacement is, of course, demographic, uh, demographic decline, so birth rate decline. So within the long history um of white power extremism and the notion of white genocide and replacement, you have the idea that if people, uh, you know, you have quote unquote race mixing, uh, but also any type of, um, of non 
heteronormative uh, sex going on, it means that, you know, it's part of race suicide and the diminishment of the white race. And this plays back into the deep state conspiracy, which is a longstanding trope in many iterations of replacement uh, discourse for uh, Jewish-controlled actors. And you think of all the attacks on Soros, for example, uh, who are trying to make this happen. Um, so, and the last thing I'll just sort of say, if you went back to the Buffalo mass shooting, uh, Gendron, the shooter, you know, in his his manifesto, you know, all this stuff is is there and was expressed, uh, the sort of notion of deep state conspiracy. So what, so what I got was, you know, more broadly, there were implicit replacement discourses there, but was really surprising and has continued to, uh, you know, of note since I was at CPAC, is just this massive spike of anti-trans, especially animus uh, and transphobia uh, and if you, well, I, most people aren't following Telegram accounts of uh, white power actors like I do, uh, but you can also, you know, with groups like the Proud Boys, just see this sharp spike in terms of their attention and focus on this issue. And so that's a long way of saying, uh, sort of our, you know, our initial discussion of this, that the uh, especially trans community uh, is definitely under threat. Um, and they're being targeted. And, uh, you know, we could have a really rough road uh, ahead of the next uh, election. So things are not looking good. Uh, I was surprised that Trump, I wasn't totally surprised. I was somewhat surprised that Trump had as strong of a showing at CPAC as he did. Nikki Haley was almost booed off the stage. Um, but he's there. And, uh, you know, you signaled the opening uh, of the article, which comes from the end of CPAC right before Trump takes the stage. And, you know, I waited. And sure enough, pretty soon to compete with DeSantis, he began to uh, invoke transphobic language as well. Uh, so, uh, you know, it looks like we're ahead for, you know, the road is going to be rough on this issue uh, moving forward. You write that, indeed, many speakers at CPAC, a microcosm of the conservative right, have demonized transgender identity by drawing on two interrelated myths. Now, we're going to get to each one of these myths uh, in a little bit uh, separately. But first is that uh, gender is natural, and so by extension, transgender people are, are unnatural. The second maintains that transgender people as unnatural deviants are dangerous. These myths enable discrimination and hate speech that put transgender people increasingly at risk, as you write, and in the crosshairs of anti-trans commentators, legislators, and even extremists. Again, before we get to each one of those myths, is that the point of the myths and those who are spreading them to instigate discrimination, hate, and even violence, potentially deadly violence against those who are transgender? Because often the words used by the anti-trans crowd Sounded like not like the calls you hear when you're hearing people call for crimes against humanity, like ethnic cleansing. So is that the point of these myths to instigate hate and even violence? Yeah, so that's a good question. And there's sort of two pieces of that puzzle. Um, the first one is that the goal of the people who are speaking, uh, you know, I, I think ultimately is power political power, right? They want to rev up the base. They want to get votes uh, and they want to be elected into office. And so this is now the issue, especially with, uh, you know, the huge number of conservatives, uh, including religious conservatives who are at CPAC. This is a way to rile up the base. So when I went to the activist training, 
you know, that's what they were there for. And they referred to people in the audience uh, as you're all activists, you're grassroots actors. So they're there to motivate people. Um, in terms of direct animus, then, by directing hostility onto those groups and inflaming it, uh, they're also aware, and some of them themselves may intentionally harbor animus uh, and want to, um, you know, spark attacks on uh, the queer community and the trans community in particular. Um, but I think that sort of core of political power uh, is really something that historically has driven many uh, politicians, uh, Patrick Buchanan, Trump, so on and so forth. Um, so those two pieces go together, but one is not a complete explanation in and of itself. So how do we understand transphobia differently if we see this as about attaining political power more than it is about hate? I'm not trying to make it into a binary question of is this about power or is this about hate more? But how do we understand it differently when instead of viewing this as a moment of spreading hatred, it's an attempt at political power. Yeah, well, it is. It's an attempt at political power that uses hate speech, which is something that uh, people all over the world use. Political leaders, uh, you know, how do you rile people up? You create a other. You create someone who's different, uh, who you portray as unnatural, as dangerous, exactly as uh, happened and is happening uh, with attacks on, in particular, the trans community. Uh, and you mobilize people to act. It's hate speech. Um, but the attribution of of motive to the leaders who are doing this, you know, is related to, but also potentially diverges somewhat from the people who are carrying out attacks. So if you go back to Trump saying, proud boy, stand back and, you know, be ready. And then when you have the Oath Keepers, uh, the Proud Boys, a uh, number of uh, far-right extremist groups who are active and they're assaulting the Capitol, they're out to, right, to do harm. The leaders themselves are using hate speech to incite it, but the attribution of, you know, sort of their many motives for why they're doing it, uh, it's too easy to just say, you know, they're doing it solely because uh, they're evil or they hate members of the trans community. They have, like all of us, they have multiple motives, and one of their motives, what they're trying to do is to rile up the base and to direct that anger onto a different group. I mean, it's a tried and true formula that's used all the time. Uh, so it's not really a, anyways, it's not something that's strange. We always have to remember that perpetration and attacks on groups are organized on a systemic level. And we have to examine how people who are political influencers who use in this case, uh, or in the case of you know my book, uh, white power dog whistles or anti-trans dog whistles, you know, they know what they're doing. Um, so the head of, you know, just as a small diversion, the head of CPAC, uh, you know, right before the conference took place, it broke that uh, it was alleged that he had fondled a male, uh, one of Herschel Walker's male staffers. And so this case kind of broke out and the head of CPAC is married. Uh, and so this was in the backdrop of everything. So you also can have this paradoxical thing where someone, uh, you know, who himself, assuming these allegations are true, uh, maybe bisexual uh, or queer as well, 
uh, is still directing attacks. So now we actually have a group called Gays Against Groomers. And you can sort of see where that goes because you ha do have, uh, you know, like log cabin Republicans uh, and they occupy a very uneasy position. And so what they're doing is they're trying to divert away onto within the larger LGBTQ plus community onto one particular group to direct the animus away from them. Um, you know, so I don't, I don't want to overly complicate things, but it's important to see that there's a political calculus that goes into us just as it does with different forms of white power extremism. Did you get the sense? And because as you were pointing out earlier, you know, you would have thought that things like China, the border immigrants, radical left Marxists, the woke, uh, the deep state, all these things that they've been talking about, the right has been talking about, the Republican Party has been talking about over the last eight to 10 years. Uh, you know, did you get a sense? All those things that you would think would be more important, that that would have, been, would have been the priority in a keynote speech. Did you get the sense then at the heart of the Republican Party campaign in 2024 at all levels of governance, whether it's president or senators or representatives or even state officials, that at the heart of the 2024 campaign for the Republican Party is going to be fear of transgender people. Did you get that feeling that that's going to be their main message? Yeah. I mean, among their main messages, it's the one that's surging right now. So, you know, going into the conference, I thought that uh, race would be more of an inflection in terms of critical race theory and DEI, as I mentioned before. So within the sort of quote unquote woke wars is as are continually being uh, foregrounded, the one that the shift that's taken place is that while people are still obviously talking about critical race theory, uh, DEI issues, issue especially with the anti-trans, transphobic rhetoric, that's the one that's just ballooning up at the moment. And, uh, you know, I expect it to be a steady course because who does it in particular appeal to religious conservatives who are a big part of the voting base, especially in primaries. So maybe there'll be a shift after the primaries, but this is certainly an issue that everyone's going to be playing on, uh, you know, who's most of the people who have a legitimate shot, in particular Trump and DeSantis, uh, as we move forward through the primary season. Now, what happens after we get into the general election? Uh, you know, there could be another shift, but I don't think that the uh, animus towards the trans community is going to go anywhere. Uh, it's going to remain front and center uh, because it's going to motivate lots of voters and politicians uh, on the right know that. Uh, and they're going to try and get pe people out to vote. You write that the anti-trans attacks were present from the start of CPAC. The kickoff session was led by women from the Leadership Institute, a conservative organization that was trained over 250,000 people in political activism. When one mentioned drag queen story time at a school, the crowd booed. Seizing the moment, the speaker declared, I got a science degree. I know what a woman is. The crowd cheered. Is the idea, this is just one of the myths that I want to uh, have you help us understand is the idea then that gender is binary has always been binary that gender is limited to either male or female is that a new idea is that a new idea that gender is not binary that gender is something other than what we think of as only male or female because a lot of people that i've talked to said i never heard about this when i was a kid so this must be something brand new is this a new idea 
Yeah, no, that that's a great question. Um, we're sort of moving into more broadly the way human beings think about difference. So we're back to sort of constructing an enemy, uh, someone who's different. Um, so again, historically, uh, categories like race are predicated upon perceived biological or perceived natural differences. So race, obviously, for, uh, you know, was invented, uh, in a sense, the notion of biological race to legitimate uh, enslavement. Uh, and it was linked to conceptions, again, that uh, race was natural, there were natural that, uh, you know, the black community were inferior, uh, you know, their inferiority legitimated their enslavement, uh, and that in addition, they were dangerous and a threat, and therefore, uh, you had to mobilize uh, sort of the security apparatus against them. That line of thinking, as you mentioned before, is exactly the same thing operates in terms of uh, sex and gender. So again, sex is also a variable category, but often plays out in terms of the categories of male and female um, expressed biological differences. Gender uh, is the tablet of cultural understandings that are sort of written upon perceived, these perceived biological differences. Uh, so you may have, and again, the, the thing about biological sex itself, there's some variation uh, in that, but we'll set that aside but you have the difference between male and female, and then you have the gender categories of men and women that are written onto that. Those categories, of course, if you just, anyone who speaks another language can also think about language and how those terms vary through language. Uh, we can go back in history and we can think about gender roles and gender conceptions and how they've changed. So those are illustrations of how gender, before we get to your the sort of heart of your question, how they vary. So almost everyone can have that understanding of variation through time uh, and also across place in terms of different parts of the world. If we look at that variation, both historically uh, and cross-culturally, people read the alignment that often is operative in English in the U.S. of a correlation between male and female mapping onto uh, male and female mapping onto men and women. But that's not the case. There, for example, are all, uh, indigenous communities have third genders. Uh, you have all sorts of variation, uh, you know, that exists around the world. Uh, and even within the United States, well, that may be the sort of mainstream conception, just like notion that most people, uh, many people, I would say probably most people believe that actually race is a natural category and not a socially constructed category. Um, but again, and if you look historically, if you look comparatively at the record, uh, simply not the case. If you go, for example, to Brazil, there are like uh, 30 different ways of categorizing what we call race. Uh, so this part of, in terms of anthropology, uh, what we do is looking at the historical record, at the cross-cultural record, to sort of throw into question different assumptions. Um, so linked to this then is power in the sense that you have social systems that promote through ideology, through education, ways of thinking about difference. 
And so for a long time in the U.S., right, the system was very mobilized uh, to portray both race and gender in these naturalized sorts of ways. <clears throat> in both respects, that's begun to uh, shift dramatically. Um, and that's sort of the moment we're in where suddenly uh, these sort of notions of inf that are ideologically, educationally, uh, people are socialized into uh, are being uh, sort of the ground shifted under them. And people are saying that there are many different ways to think about uh, gender and not just, uh, you know, sort of one way, the sort of dominant uh, model that exists. And you write of the two myths, you write the first is gender is natural, so transgender people are unnatural. And you add this myth conflates the critical distinction between sex and gender. Is the confusion, is the conflation of sex and gender intentional in order to give people a misunderstanding of what gender is? Yeah, it's both intentional and it plays, and it's important to underscore this, it plays into what in academia and anthropology they call folk conceptions, but it's our everyday understanding. So, and I'm purposely trying to make the link between race uh, and gender because most people are now much more familiar with the problems with invoking categories of race, maybe not as aware of that the same logic works with gender. Um, but if you look at race, why do people think their biological differences are natural? Well, skin color, everybody can sort of see skin color. And again, we're sort of setting aside histories of education uh, and socialization in the same way uh, that the CPAC speaker Stoko talked about it. Well, you know, the speakers would literally say, well, look at me, I'm a man. Isn't it obvious? So it's the sort of surface level understandings, but the easiest ones for people to tap into. <clears throat> so that's why these naturalized categories uh, are so difficult to, um, to render, to make people think about them in more complex ways. Uh, and this was where we take into the dive, uh, you know, sort of looking at history and the way that these categories vary, um, you know, and these are the sort of the sort of deeper understanding that we need to combat uh, ideologies that demonize uh, other groups of people, uh, as has gone on with race, continues to go on with race, but is now especially going on with transgender people. We are. Speaking, and I should add, I'm sorry, many, many people, many people, in, you know, in the U.S., if you went back five years ago, three years ago, maybe one year ago, we're not very familiar at all with transgender people. But now everybody is. And then you have the thing where you have, as you read the drag, uh, drag queen story hour, people are sort of say, well, those are transgender people. But of course, you know, people who are in drag are not necessarily transgender. They're performing a gender role. Uh, and so all of this is kind of murky and complicated. And so what human beings do is we go with the sort of simple uh, thing that we can see that seems obvious uh, when in fact, and that's why it's often the ground of very pernicious uh, ideologies uh, and political manipulation like we have going on now uh, with the anti-trans uh, rhetoric. 
Because what seems obvious isn't always the truth. We are speaking with anthropologist Alex Hinton, who wrote the Sapiens article, Two Myths Fueling the Conservative Rights Dangerous Transphobia. You write that around the world, people understand gender in different ways. Some societies have a third gender, such as hijras in India, while many Native American communities have a gender status called two-spirit. Yet others view themselves as non-binary. Gender conceptions also intersect with systems of power such as colonialism and patriarchy, how do conceptions of gender conceptions intersect with colonialism and patriarchy? Is colonialism the imposition by imperial powers of not only their own religion and culture, but also of their understanding of gender? Yeah, and it's you know it's, it can be both uh, again because people are mobilizing. When I said before that people are purposely, uh, you know, different influencers, political leaders are mobilizing this discourse because of to rile up the base. That doesn't mean they don't believe it as well. And certainly some, maybe many do believe what they're saying, even as they're also aware that they can, you know, manipulate people uh, and galvanize action uh, by invoking these these naturalized tropes uh, about, in this case, uh, gender. But if you go back to, you know, if we go back to the founding of the U.S., if we go back to settler colonialism, uh, you know, the order that began was very much a uh, white Protestant patriarchal uh, order. And that's historically through time. Uh, there's a through line uh, into the present, and that through line influences uh, gender roles as well as the racial categories that uh, sort of came online, especially Uh, in the 1800s into the 1900s when the system of enslavement was really institutionalized. So, you know, that history of patriarchy influences uh, understandings now and gender roles. Uh, And again, if we look at uh, colonialism in general, is that we have lots of continuities that uh, still exist. You know, when we have the George Floyd moment, uh, maybe it's continuing to some extent, but that was a moment where people suddenly began to talk about uh, structural racism. You know, I guarantee you the bulk of people and certainly students I teach, uh, many of them were not aware of structural racism or systemic racism, but suddenly, uh, you know, there came to be a much greater awareness about it. And so that was an example of an ideology that operates implicitly that suddenly is made explicit and people will begin to think critically about it. Uh, and I think we're also <clears throat> maybe in a similar moment, though not with a significant uh, event like um, George Floyd, where people are beginning to think more critically uh, about gender categories. And so in the long term, we're in a sort of horrible phase. But if you look five, 10 years down the road, you know, attitudes may very much uh, have changed and people may be much more accepting and may have more complex understandings of gender. Uh, But at the moment, we're in a really rocky phase. You write that the second myth holds that transgender people are deviant threats. One iteration of this myth centers on the conspiracist belief that LGBTQ plus people and their allies are grooming children to embrace queer and or transgender identities. If grooming is indoctrination, then we are groomed to be, among other things, patriotic Americans. We're groomed to be often Christians, we're groomed to be heterosexual, but that intense grooming we all experience doesn't work on 
everybody. How effective is indoctrination when it comes, whether it's on a daily basis or whether it's just every so often? Do people determine their gender, whether it's heterosexual or LGBTQ plus, through indoctrination? Yeah, or indoctrination, socialization. Um, you know, the question is whether, to what extent, it's intentional versus implicit. Um, but absolutely, um, and this is where. In terms of education and in terms of the point of the uh, essay I wrote, uh, the idea is to get people to think critically about these issues. And so the counterpoint to indoctrination uh, and to patriotic socialization uh, in terms of any system that exists that tries to get us to think in certain sorts of ways, and those systems can be left, right, and center, you know, critical thinking uh, is the tool that we use uh, to unpack that and to get people to think more deeply uh, about these given issues. Um, so that's, you know, and that's kind of a irony is that uh, you have places like Hillsdale College um, that was behind the Trump uh, Patriotic American uh, Historical Commission. I can't remember the exact title of it um, that are talking about liberal arts education, which ultimately is geared towards critical thinking but in fact, in this case, is just sort of a socialization propaganda exercise. Uh, it's somewhat astounding. But maybe in the end, that's a point of convergence, something like an emphasis on critical thinking uh, that could bring together some people on the right and the left to have dialogue. Um, because ultimately, critical thinking itself is neutral. It's not politicized, right? It's a way to think and unpack categories. Um, that may be a different, uh, you know, this is hell. Maybe it's a way to get out of the hell a little bit uh, through some, some sort of dialogue like that. But uh, anyway, so this article, uh, as well as much of the writing I do, is about trying to critically unpack our assumptions and think more deeply about these issues. And you point out that at CPAC, the point was vividly illustrated when Daily Wire host Michael Knowles invoked the language of genocide. He stated transgenderism must be eradicated from public life entirely. You describe how he used a derogatory term suggesting transgender identity as a condition. That is a health condition with certain characteristics or symptoms. By definition, a condition is addressed with a treatment. A treatment is something that healthcare providers do for their patients to control a health problem, lessen its symptoms or clear it up. Uh, treatments can include medicine, therapy, surgery, or other approaches. A cure is when a treatment makes a health problem go away and it's not expected to come back. How is being transgender misunderstood? as a condition that needs a treatment in order to be cured? What happens to our understanding or someone's understanding of being transgender when it is viewed as a kind of disease that can be fixed? Yeah, thanks. I, I cut out a little bit from part of what you were saying, but I got the, uh, you know, the gist of it. Um, so, yeah, you know, this goes right back into what we've been talking about. Um, in terms of if you have, you know, historically, if you want to direct animus against a group, you say things like they're unnatural. And then, of course, if they're unnatural, they're deviant, and therefore they're a threat to the social order. Uh, again, this is a straightforward uh, calculus that's been used historically and repeatedly that is currently being used. If you go to Russia, for example, in terms of Putin's rhetoric, that's a different issue. Um, but it's omnipresent, and this is one way it's playing out uh, in the U.S. at the moment. Um, 
so the you know so the invocations of deviants therefore legitimate attacks it legitimates uh social legislation political legislation that's going on uh and unfortunately this is the uh this is sort of the point we're at again i lost part of your question in the middle so if i didn't answer everything uh you know please do uh repeat it now my question i think you pretty much answered i was just saying how is being transgender okay. misunderstood as a condition that needs a treatment in order to be cured yeah. so yeah yeah so you know but it's important to underscore as you just did that the logic of this language of this hate speech taken to its extreme can lead to atrocity crimes which i said as i noted before it's not just genocide but for example crimes against humanity and Knowles, the person who made that comment used the most extreme form of the language but in doing so he sort of showed what's in the backdrop which is a sort of idea that this community uh, is deviant, it's a threat, and it needs to be eradicated. So, I mean, you, you point out that back at CPAC, the crowd roars as a voice bellows. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the next president of the United States, President Donald J. Trump. You then quote Trump saying, the most important battle in our lives is taking place right now. Warning that sinister forces are trying to turn the United States into a lawless, open borders, crime-ridden, filthy communist nightmare. None of which is true, despite the fact that I wish some of it was, particularly open borders. Trump's campaigns are always based on fear, which is weird in what is supposedly the home of the brave. Why does fear work so well as a political campaign strategy from your studies in the past? And how sustainable is it? Oh, it's very, very sustainable. I mean, fear is, you know, you play into fear. It's like you're, it's the gasoline you set the fire with, right? You you turn it on, you combust, um, you know, fear and grievance. Uh, if you look at the drivers of uh, U.S. politics recently, uh, Trump is a master of inflaming grievance and fear. Uh, and he has, you know, most people, haven't sat through, you know, in this case, it was like an hour and 40 minute uh, Trump speech, but he's very effective in the way he does this. He shifts between sort of fiery language and folksy language. And he moves and he uses the two very effectively. Uh, but he knows how to inflame. He knows when to do it. And I think the uh, Capitol insurrection uh, was a clear illustration. But even the fact that in a presidential debate, he could tell a white power extremist group to be on standby to attack. Uh, you know, that that's it's nobody oddly, almost no one talks about that anymore. But the Proud Boys did attack. They heard they got shirts uh, with his slogan, uh, you know, what he had said. Uh, so fear, grievance, uh, you know, it's, it's going to continue and it's going to be a driver in this election. Uh, and let's just hope that, uh, you know, the the queer, but especially the transgender community in particular, uh, you know, don't suffer too much. I think they're definitely going to be uh, there's going to be there already is a lot of harassment and whether there are more attacks, it's probably quite likely. 
the right is, as well as the people in the center. It's, it's bipartisan. I shouldn't just say the right. But uh, there is the primacy of individualism today under neoliberalism, which despite being reactionary, has bipartisan rep- uh, support. Does that clash with reactionary views on those who are LGBTQ+. Why is that individualism of choosing what your gender is not supported by the right? What does that reveal to you about their embrace of individualism? Well, it's strategic individualism. You know, it goes as if you look at states' rights, for example, the notion of states' rights are deployed strategically as well. It's when you have a political agenda, you invoke certain tropes, certain ways of speaking, certain issues uh, to be effective and to mobilize people. So it's, uh, again, it's part of a strategic calculus. Um, So, for example, uh, let's say, uh, you know, DeSantis, it won't happen. But even, you know, Trump wins, what's going to happen? Well, you're going to move to have national legislation. You're not going to talk about states' rights anymore. So, again, it depends on where you are, what your objectives are. Uh, These things are very intentionally and strategically invoked. So to what extent do you think that the calls for violence against trans people are now verging on calls for genocide? Well, I would say, again, genocide is the sort of extreme that's implicit and made explicit by Knowles of this uh, sort of attack on the trans community. The fantasy of eliminating, eradicating the trans community is out there. It's not something. So if you think about, so one thing, if we go back to some of the far right language, there's a thing called the Overton window. Uh, There's a history to it, but the basic idea is that a goal of many uh, right wing groups is to shift the boundaries of what's acceptable speech. So, you know, 10 years ago, talking about white genocide and replacement wasn't acceptable. Through the politicking, it has now become acceptable and it's almost mainstream. The idea of genocide against a group is normally something that's, you know, using genocidal language uh, about a group is usually something that's outside the boundaries of acceptable speech. Well, Knowles used it. He was attacked by people, uh, you know, on the left, uh, by scholars. Um, You know, I I wrote against that as well. Um, But it's a lot of people defended him. He went on podcasts, different shows. He had people who were tweeting support. Um, So, again, what's happened is what should be unacceptable speech at CPAC was turned into somewhat acceptable speech. And the danger is that this continues and it becomes like replacement now, something that's sort of an everyday, okay thing to talk about. So, you know, it's very dangerous. But just to have that idea out there as a possibility creates the possibility that it could happen. That possibility would require a lot of different steps. Um, But how many people would have ever predicted the capital insurrection And more to the point, how many people have thought about what would have happened had, A, the capital insurrection spread dramatically, or B, 
the uh, the results of the election been overturned, the the situation at that time was extremely volatile, uh, and we could have had uh, you know identity targeted violence that was taking place quite soon. Um, you know, we we didn't get to that point, but that's an example of how language and ideas that are extreme in certain circumstances can potentially lead to things that would otherwise be unimaginable. One last question for you, Alex. We have been speaking with anthropologist Alex Hinton, who wrote the Sapiens article, Two Myths Fueling the Conservative Right's Dangerous Transphobia. He's the author or editor of 17 books, including the award-winning Why Did They Kill Cambodia in the Shadow of Genocide? His most recent books are It Can Happen Here, White Power and the Rising Threat of Genocide in the United States, Anthropological Witness, Lessons from the Khmer Rouge Tribunal, and Perpetrators, Encountering humanity's dark side. You can follow Alex on Twitter at Alex L. Hinton. One last question for you, Alex, and I promise we do this with each and every one of our guests. Our final question is what we call the question from hell. It's the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Is all that matters to conservatives like those at the CPAC? That the Bible or current translations and interpretations are doggedly binary on gender. Is there any such thing as a biblical argument for non-binary gender? Because the closest I found is in Galatians 3.28 in one of the versions of the Bible, which says there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So for transphobic conservatives, is all that matters, their interpretation and translation of their chosen version of the Bible, and is it just simply impossible to challenge that logic? No, it's not impossible to challenge the logic. And, you know, historically, as I said before, you know, sort of the way people think about things, they think critically, uh, you know, you go to the issue of same-sex marriage, right, which was unimaginable, and a lot of the same rhetorics are being used, that are being used uh, now and a lot of the groups that are being that are mobilized against the uh, trans community um, at the moment we're all mobilized against uh, same-sex marriage going back in time and actually Knowles when he made that comment explicitly referred to uh, you know the right the conservative right saying we continually fight against something then we sort of you know things shift and we say well that's okay but we pick another issue so, you know, they're aware of that. Absolutely, there can be change. Um, and again, you know, you think about scripture, what's foregrounded in any system of thought. So if you go to, uh, and again, I, I should just note that there are religious conservatives who support the transgender community. Uh, but certainly there weren't many of them at CPAC. Um, the majority of uh, conservative um you know, Christian groups, uh, you know, are uneasy and dislike same-sex marriage uh, and transgender uh, issues and gender in general. So, you know, sort of A, there's hope, there can be change. But going back to the scripture, there's also this sort of dominant modality of indoctrination. And if we go back to your earlier question uh, about history, uh, colonial settler colonialism, uh, patriarchy, it's a long-standing one. Uh, it's really hard to uh, to change, but things do change. Um, you know, we had, uh, if we go back to 1619, right? You think about enslavement, 
which really then got going uh, at the end of the 1600s. The vast majority of U.S. history and the uh, settler colonialism that predated it, right, had enslavement systematized and structuralized. It's only very recently that that changed, right? In the 1960s, you could argue uh, after the Civil War to, to an extent, but we had, of course, Jim Crow. So I, I would put it in the 1960s. You know, not much, if you sort of look historically at that time frame, the way we now think most people uh, think and talk about race often, there's been massive change. So I think, again, if you look at uh, religious conservatives and notions of gender and put it in the same sort of time scale, we can see there has been a lot of change. So, you know, as I said before, five, 10 years from now, I think we'll be in a different place. Um, but the problem is, uh, you know, getting to that place uh, could be really ugly and it could involve more attacks. Uh, you know, it could go in a different direction. Um, but I think in general, and if you look sort of shifting to a different related topic at the history of human rights, you know, we have the Universal Declaration, we have the 75th anniversary coming up, but the purview of human rights protections in general has dramatically expanded uh, since World War II. Uh, so, you know, in the, the longer term, I'm optimistic, and the short term, I'm pessimistic. Uh, and I'm also alarmed. And I think we all need to be alarmed and to make sure that the more extreme situations and that sort of genocidal fantasy uh, that was expressed by the uh, by Knowles uh, at CPAC to make sure that nothing remotely resembling that takes place. Um, so maybe we're back to this is hell. I think we're in a this is hell moment, but hopefully things will be a little bit better, uh, you know, 10 years down the road. We have been speaking with anthropologist Alex Hinton, and I just want to say to everybody, listen, if you want to continue following this uh, conversation and this discussion and what Alex has been uh, witnessing at things at like CPAC, you got to follow him on Twitter at Alex L. Hinton, H-I-N-T-O-N. He is a fantastic follow when it comes to things like uh, transgender issues and the threats of violence, threats of political violence against citizens. Thank you so much for being on our show, Alex. This has really been a pleasure, and this is fantastic writing, and you know I'm going to annoy you in the future to have you back on. That would be terrific, and thanks so much for your show and for the invite. I appreciate it. All right. Take care, Alex. Okay. You too. Thanks. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell and to support the show, Visit thisishell.com. Why is it that we always have long-term optimism but short-term pessimism? I guess that's better than having short-term <laughs> optimism and long-term pessimism. I guess. But yeah. is there some way we can not... We always have long-term optimism and short-term pessimism. I would think that might be a function of capitalism. Perhaps. I mean, it's kind of a chicken and egg thing with that, I, I would imagine. I don't know. Capitalism kind of requires that of us. Right. Anyway. We want to have profits, so that would bring about, you think, short-term optimism, but it doesn't. It brings about short-term pessimism. We don't think at all about long-term profits, so mm -hmm. you would think that would bring about long-term pessimism, but it brings about long-term optimism. I don't know. That's a lot of isms. Yeah, there's a lot of isms in there. Manufacturing Descent since 1996. This is hell. And you are listening to the best of 2023 as determined by listeners and the staff 
of This Is Hell, and if our talk with Alex Hinton on the lies the far right believes about transgender people, that interview that we just played reminded you that the far right will say anything to justify their unjustifiable hatred. Show your appreciation for completely commercial-free This Is Hell, providing over 27 years of content that you cannot find anywhere else, giving airtime to analysis like that of Alex's that you won't hear anywhere else, and providing new content to you absolutely free every week since 1996, including nearly 10 years of free shows that you can listen to right now at thisishell.com, and doing so without accepting any grants or any money of any kind from any corporation. We're so nonprofit, we can't afford to be a not-for-profit. Show your appreciation for all that and help us keep This Is Hell online and on air and assist in our efforts to make every show we've ever done available for free at our website by becoming a subscriber to our bonus Patreon podcast, which happens every week on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, or you can show your support for a completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you can see all the ways you can support This Is Hell. And you're going to want to tune in to next Thursday's uh, the December 28th Patreon podcast, because it is the my new annual tradition of not only giving my predictions for the following year, but looking back at my past predictions and seeing... How well or not they've gone. Will, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how some of our listeners are responding so far. All right. This week's question from hell is, if you had to relive 2023 all over again, what would be the thing you would dread living through again the most? And on regular old Facebook... Uh, Lisa MP replies, starting and then quitting a teacher training program. Oh, she told me, tell us about that at, uh, at Office uh, Hours. Hours. That's right. <laughs> right on. Um, Barbara K has a, has a long one. Uh, the Hamas attack and then taking of and murder of hostages followed by the unre- unrelenting destruction of Gaza. That should be my selection for what I dread the most, but what I'm choosing is more personal. I would dread most reliving the moment that my doctor spoke the word cancer. Wow. Yeah, wow. Uh, This is the whole story. Quote, you have uterine cancer. Suddenly the paparazzi is hounding me, asking me to stop for an ultrasound, MRI, (laughs) CAT scan, EKG. (laughs) The doctor is pleased with the photos. Next, the tumor will be removed along with your internal lady parts and a couple of lymph nodes, and you'll be home by sunset. While you rest up, we'll be poking and prodding and running tests on your bits and bobs. See you in a week. One week later, we think we got everything we needed. The entire tumor is now in biomedical trash heap, along with the rest of your inner femininity. You're welcome. Oh, I almost forgot. I'll need to see you every three months during the year, during year one, during years two and three, we'll meet every six months. The following two years require only single visits. Then you're free, cancer free, you see. Not the end. Thank my lucky stars. Wow. wow. That's Thank you a for lot. sharing that, Barbara. Holy cow, Barbara. Hope... By the way, love the phrase paparazzi for x-ray technicians know, and MRI right? technicians. That's so great. going to steal that one. I am too. I can just imagine like going into an MRI tube and see all these flashing lights at the other end, like 1940s flashbulbs. Uh, making that loaded. sound. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Um, let's see. Uh, 
Sherry D replies, the not freeing of Leonard Peltier. Peltier. Peltier, Peltier. I don't know. Tomato, tomato. Yeah. Uh, American Indian movement. Uh, wounded knee. Oh, okay. Right, 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 right. Thank you. That that was uh, not sinking in for a second. Um, let's see. Jeff Dorchin, our very own, has a pretty on-brand response. <laughs> Soiling my drawers while speeding home trying to get there to take the dump. Taught me a powerful lesson about too much kimchi and beer, too. <laughs> <laughs> Good lord. You and are... uh, I'm hoping that car was a rental. <laughs> <laughs> you are gross, sir. Uh, let's see. Over on the hellhole, um, only two responses so far, and they're both identical, actually. I assume that's an error. Uh, Nick P. replies to the question from hell, if you had to relive 2023 all over again, what would be the thing you would dread living through again the most? All the rapes, tortures, murders, mass shootings, and war. Yeah. 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 Can't, uh, can't, <laughs> can't argue, argue with that. that. <laughs> a very good, very good point. Any more? Uh, that's all for the Facebooks. Okay. So we'll uh, maybe get some, some more of your answers to the question from hell uh, following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. Um, Will uh, will be reading some of those for us because I know there's at least one on Twitter. I'm not mm-hmm. sure about over on Discord. I think Discord has one too. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, as always, wins their choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise they want. You can find all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page, on Patreon, Discord, or Facebook group page, Welcome to the Hellhole, on Twitter or X or whatever. But we must have your answer uh, by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing this week's winner. That's going to be on tomorrow's show. Jeff Dorchin will be on today, believe it or not. I completely forgot because of a whole bunch of... Hell, that's going on in my life right now. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory. This week in rotten history. On December 18th, 1972, 51 years ago this week, the United States launched a massive aerial bombing campaign against North Vietnam that would continue for 11 days. President Richard Nixon, who was clearly full of the Christmas spirit or full of something else, ordered the bombing of after North Vietnamese negotiators rejected major changes the United States had made in a proposed peace agreement, backing away from peace talks in Paris and ignoring a U.S. ultimatum. So to summarize, in an agreement on ending the war that had been completed at the very last minute, the U.S. made drastic changes and told the Vietnamese if they did not accept, there would be dire consequences and many North Vietnamese would be killed in a massive bombardment. Officially called Operation Linebacker 2 because they're so bad at naming these things that Operation Linebacker, they had to come up with Operation Linebacker 2. Why wouldn't you just come up with a new name? I mean, there are three or four linebackers on the field at any point. <laughs> That's a good point. There is a Nickelback, too, which is kind of both. Uh, so, uh, officially called <laughs> Operation Linebacker 2. Man, they need more money, uh, marketing money over at the Pentagon. Uh, the bombing campaign would become better known as the so-called Christmas bombings. Think of them as the early 1970s version of the current TV series Holiday Wars, which associates the celebration of the season with deadly armed conflict. 
Some 200 U.S. aircraft dropped 40,000 tons of high explosives, mostly in areas including Hanoi, the North Vietnamese capital, and its nearby port, Haiphong, which was a major entry port for military aid from the Soviet Union. Haiphong is also the last name of Danny Haiphong from uh, uh, Black Agenda Report, who uh, does uh, has been appeared has appeared on our show several times, and I had no idea that there was a town named with his last name. It was the heaviest bombing of the entire Vietnam War. More than 1,600 civilians lost their lives, along with about 100 U.S. troops killed or taken prisoner. On December 30th. After the North Vietnamese government finally returned to the peace talks and largely agreed to the new amendments, the drastic changes the Nixon administration had made, Nixon halted the bombing. But evidence would later emerge that the war in Vietnam could have been brought to a conclusion many years earlier if Nixon's 1968 presidential campaign had not used secret back-channel contacts to persuade the North Vietnamese against agreeing to peace terms that were then being offered by the administration of President Lyndon B. Johnson. Yes, Nixon had an October surprise, too, and it was asking the North Vietnamese to continue the war so Nixon could win the 1968 election. So how the hell did Nixon end up on a freaking postage stamp? Nixon's sabotage of that peace process meant to propel him into the White House had unnecessarily extended the war, killing an additional 28,000 U.S. troops and untold thousands of Vietnamese and Cambodian combatants and civilians before the U.S. finally withdrew in defeat in 1975. Then there was President Reagan's October surprise, when he did essentially the same thing, but instead of Nixon lengthening the war in Vietnam, killing thousands of U.S. troops and untold numbers of Vietnamese civilians, the Iranians held hostages until Reagan was elected, ensuring his victory in Reaganomics, which is still causing massive inequality, poverty, and homelessness in the United States to this day. Don't get me started on President George W. Bush losing the election in 2000, but the Supreme Court intervened to give him the presidency. And then there's President Trump, who did not win the popular vote, but became president through the Electoral College, an institution Trump would then try to overthrow when he lost his re-election bid. Look, I am no fan of the Democratic Party, but if I'm not mistaken, every Republican since Eisenhower has illegitimately won the presidential election, that is besides President George H.W. Bush, who would then lie us into the first Iraq war and was indicted in the Iran-Contra affair of illegally sending arms to the Middle East through a Nicaraguan terror group that was illegally funded by the United States. Now that's rotten history. And this is Hell. Coming up, Jeff with the Moment of Truth. More of your answers to this week's question from Hell. We'll also tell you the next Best of 2023 interview that we'll be playing as selected by listeners to and the staff of This Is Hell. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove me wrong. This is Hell. And Will, I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. Fear not, for I bring you tidings of great joy. 
from woo-woo reconstructionists and secular humanists all the way up the strictness spectrum to hardcore orthodox with hats of black, Jews of all levels of religiosity can be found who oppose Israel's genocide in Gaza. By the same token, along that identical spectrum can be found those who believe the more Palestinians killed by the IDF, the better. The burden of having been a stateless people for 2,000 years, often scapegoated in exile or massacred for the greater glory of one demagogue or another, was, this Hanukkah season, replaced by a new burden. It's actually been, to some extent, the specifically Jewish burden, off and on, since Zionism began its project in the 19th century, but it's grown especially onerous this year. That burden to the Jews is the Jews themselves. Nothing is more burdensome to a Jew who has recognized the propaganda coming from the Jewish state as efforts to disguise its crimes than a Jew who swallows that propaganda. And nothing is more burdensome to a Jew who swallows Israeli state propaganda to any degree than a Jew armed with information cited by reasonable sources disputing that propaganda. Not the Palestinians, not the Muslim states opposing Israel, not even the Jews' long history of feeling sorry for themselves has been such a burden to a Jew this Hanukkah as have other Jews. Well, Hanukkah is over. All miraculous illumination has been squeezed out of an insufficient amount of lamp oil. The Maccabees have triumphed against the liberalizing forces of Hellenism in what noted alcoholic Christopher Hitchens characterized as a fascist insurgency. The Latkas and Berliners, excuse me, Sufkan Yot, have all been et. The dreidel's angular acceleration has been surrendered to gravity and landed the toy in a position with the Hebrew letter shin displayed. The burden can at last be laid down. The Jew, at least the Jew of the United States, is free to focus on either enjoying or ignoring the yuletide spirit that has gripped the land with the obsessive passion of Christopher Hitchens for the morning's first fifth of whiskey. It is the spirit of buying and giving, represented this time of year, by that most domineering of Germanic holy men and mascot of capitalism, Santa Claus. Klaus, like his more entertaining counterpart, Krampus, judges the children and finds them wanting. Klaus is the giver of dollies and toy trucks. Each shiny present, however, represents, at least in Klaus's mind, the true gift desired by all souls, naughty or nice, child or adult, not figgy pudding, but salvation. The Jew must never forget that behind the wishes for peace on earth, there lies a mystical event which wrapped the original Hebrew cosmology in a holographic foil and put a bow on it. In the words of the carol, O Holy Night, Christ was born and the soul felt its worth. It's important also to note that Jesus wasn't entirely God until the first Nicene Synod declared him so. One among the gathered clerical elite contributing to the decision was Nicholas of Bari, later known as Saint Nicholas, which name morphed into the bilingual mashup Santa Claus. In his brunette uncouth incarnation as Belschnickel, he used to carry the naughty ones away for hellish punishment in the same sack now filled with answers to the epistolary desires sent to him from around the world. Toys are the metaphorical salvation each soul desires, much as wine is the blood of Jesus. Sometimes Dark Father was accompanied by the Christkindl, the Christ child, played by a woman 
who dispensed gifts while Belschnickel or Dark Father Christmas doled out the guilt, beatings, and penitential tasks. It is from Christkindl that we get Kris Kringle, yet another name for Santa Claus, one revealing that one-third of the Trinity, the Son himself, is a combination of the abusive Dark Father and the child-friendly Prince of Peace, and also of both masculine and feminine principles, the pair together serving the disciplinary function of a good cop, bad cop holiday organism. Along with intrusive mummers, carolers, goat-headed theriomorphs, and assorted common rowdies of the season, the old dark father made Christmas a harrowing time for everyone but the public nuisances themselves, young and old alike, cowered by the hearth, and sometimes that traditional fire hazard, the Yule log, a long flaming tree trunk sticking out into the room and fed into the fireplace as it was consumed by fire, absolutely bananas. The homebodies were held hostage to fear for upwards of two weeks, on edge because at any moment they might be invaded by entertainers, pummeling them with noise, maudlin songs, verbal abuse, clubs, or whips. The children's stomachs were knotted in anxiety over worries of being thrown into a big bag and taken away to endure further abuse, slavery, or simply to be eaten. No one from whatever economic class, was free of the fear of horrors, both human and supernatural, permeating the season like ubiquitous pumpkin spice. Businessmen were apt to be visited by ghosts of their departed associates or more purposeful demons, dragging them through visions of the failures of their lives. The famous Frank Capra character, George Bailey, was driven by yuletide stress to attempt suicide, from which he was distracted by the ploy of a spirit from beyond the grave, only to be tormented by that same spirit, terrorized with visions of an alternate reality only he could prevent. And of course, there's the hellish tale of Charlie Brown, whose every effort to placate his tyrannical friends brought about fresh recriminations and hazing. He would no doubt have resorted to the same relief George Bailey sought, but was rescued, preemptive to the attempt, only by allowing his neurotic friend with a fabric fetish to subject him to a recitation of part of the Gospel of Luke, followed by a debauched display of his capricious friend's anatomically impossible flailings to the cacophony of Caucasian piano jazz. I don't know how Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, Jains, Sikhs, Zoroastrians, Baha'i, animists, or atheists will make it through the season. I advise the Jews, however, to lay down the burden that is their fellow Jews and enjoy the Christians' dark hauntings. Their burden is channeled from the spirit world through acts of mocking malevolence. Do not envy, nor pity, nor admire, nor attempt to alleviate the suffering of the Christmas celebrant in their soul's ordeal. Just sit back, enjoy the entertainment provided by their torture, or simply take it for granted and be of good cheer. This has been the Moment of Truth. Good day! It's the time of the year when uh, that stupid Rankin-Bass animation, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, reminds everybody that nobody... No wants a Chuck in the box. <laughs> nobody wants a Charlie in the box, man. That's just oh, not true. I am telling you... It's not you. true. I would love you in the box. <laughs> oh, you know, by the way, Chuck... Yeah, libertarians are noted conservatives. They're not 
they're not libertarians. They don't know no. what it means. They don't know what anything means. I think that the libertarian, uh, saying you're libertarian is a cover so you don't have to say that you're a Republican or that you're a conservative. So it sounds like you're independent minded when in reality you're not. Right. Although they do, you know, they do come out in favor of the legalization of pot. Yeah, that's the only. And then they don't do anything about actually legalizing pot. <laughs> Did, no, uh, they just sit around and smoke it. Exactly. I don't think Rand Paul is voting for legalizing pot, unfortunately, but he should be. That would be that would be more on brand if you're a libertarian, but apparently yeah, it's not. It would. It would. You know what's really on brand? What's tailored that? suits? <laughs> The kind they that they really, wear, the kind they wear at the uh, stock exchange on the floor, those really loud suits with the piping on the lapels and stuff. Not just the, uh, the, the kind they wear to the Yale Athletic Club <laughs> yeah. uh, to drink their uh, fancy cocktails or you know classic cocktails. Yes, yeah, so you're absolutely right. They got to be classic cocktails. I'd like a Gimli. <laughs> What's a Gimli? Is that a dwarf from Lord of the Rings? That's a dwarf from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> There's also a but there Gimlet. should be a Gimlet. Gimlet. That's what it is. Gimlet. <laughs> Wait, what was the Lime Ricky thing? Oh, uh, have you ever? I hate to bring up TV, except I love TV. Uh, our flag means death. Have you seen it? No, but I have heard of that. I've heard that. It's that's a historical yeah. comedy. It's based on real historical people and a hugely gay ship of pirates, and. Uh, they uh, they also uh, that- showed the invention of the lime Ricky, which was invented by a pirate named Ricky. Oh, really? I like that there was a pirate just named Ricky. <laughs> I don't think that's the case. I have a feeling that's not entirely accurate. Hey, it's historical, man! So is there anybody in this that I would recognize? Taika Waititi. Oh, okay. He's he's hilarious. He's you know whatever. I don't you know you got to get past episode three. Okay, that's the first three episodes of the first season. Tend to drag. They didn't drag for me, but for other people who are not as uh, I don't know, not as excited about pirates. You're <laughs> just a glutton for exposition. So. <laughs> <laughs> Jeffy, this is true. What? Enjoy the rest of the year. We will be talking to you again sometime early next year. I hope that the rest of this year is good for you, and I hope that next year is far better. Back at you, man. No more explosions or gut transplants or anything. (laughs) Yeah, let's not have any of that anymore. All right, Jeffy. All right, love you, man. Stay beautiful. You too. Bye. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi, and not just the Potawatomi, the Ojibwe, the Ottawa, Miami, the Ho-Chunk, the Menominee, and Sac, and Fox Peoples. This is Hell. Will, please remind us what is this week's question from Hell, and share how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from Hell is, if you had to relive 2023 all over again, what would be the thing you would dread living through again the most? Uh, We have a few... uh responses on patreon that we haven't read yet first coming from our very own backwards jefferson nas refuge who replies if i say work does that mean all of it or just one particular day i'll say all of it yeah, yeah. it'll be all of i mean it. you could do it either way but sure i'd just go with all of it just choose your own adventure nas refuge <laughs> exactly oh, old grouch replies <laughs> The disappointment in humanity that Gaza represents, offset by only by the love of my life still being here. Aw. Oh, that's sweet. 
Essential replies, cramming antipolygraph.org. Guess I'll have to check that out. <laughs> Got something to do this week. Yeah. Um, Nate the Great replies, the first time I heard Donald Trump's name. Wow. All right. That happened in 2023? Apparently. Mm. Lucky yeah. you. I want to live under that rock. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Sounds see. nice. And then lastly, there's a lone Twitter response from the wallet inspector haunting Europe. All right. <laughs> my birth with clarity. <laughs> I had somebody come to my door yesterday and uh, they rang the bell and they said, uh, hi, my name's can't remember. My name's Jim from uh, Clean Energy Service. I'm, oh, yeah. I've I'm here to do, get this, I'm here to do address authentication. Hmm. What the hell does that mean? It means they want to look at your utility bill so I, you can write down the number in it so they can steal. Well, so they can slightly you. switch your uh, energy source over. Right. They can slam you and they can change your energy. But it's so dumb because address authentication step in front of the building see what the number right. is look at the street <laughs> exactly address authenticated they came over maybe six months ago and uh, they said look we're from this uh, clean energy service and we have proof and they handed my girlfriend this laminated sheet mm -hmm. that every word was completely out of focus sure no no <laughs> no right no one can laminate things <laughs> Pretend they're official. So I'm listening in on the conversation through the intercom, and my girlfriend's just like, you know, go. You got to go away. You got to go away. <laughs> and so yeah. I can hear the door closing, and they're talking amongst each other. And while I'm listening in, all of a sudden I said, please leave the building. Please leave the building. Please leave the building. And I stopped, and they were like, did you hear that? <laughs> Man. Oh, I'm glad they're still out there. I was beginning to worry. I haven't, I haven't had a Seen visit for in a, a few while. years. Yeah. I have a button. Uh, I think it's an, even here in the office uh, from one of those people. And it was a gigantic button that they had to wear in like the early aughts. And it said, I am not a public utilities employee. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. <laughs> Again, the per person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever. This is Hell Merch you want. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, Twitter, Patreon. You know all the different places. But we have to uh, get your answers in by the end of tomorrow's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Will, who is our next guest here coming up during our series, uh, The Best of 23, here on This Is Hell? We wrap up this week's Best of 2023 discussion by playing our July talk with M.E. O'Brien on her book, Family Abolition, Capitalism and the Communizing of Care. Yeah, I got to remember to read an uh, email uh, from Kafka S, who uh, sent us a very nice email about Patreon and about the show this year. We'll be uh, reading that on tomorrow's show. Nice. Again, This Is Hell has been nominated as, as a finalist as Chicago's Best Podcast in the Chicago Reader Best of 2023 Readers Poll, and I've been nominated as Best Radio DJ. So please vote for uh, This Is Hell under the City Life category for Best Podcast. Also under the City Life category, vote for me, Chuck Mertz, as Best Radio DJ at chicagoreader.com slash best. Polls are open through January 14th of next year, and the winners will be announced time in February. We also hope to see all of you tomorrow, Wednesday, December 20th, Winter Solstice Eve for the annual This Is Hell Holiday Office Party, which will be held during our regularly scheduled 
Office hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue, beginning around 6 p.m. that evening. Uh, this, this, is the, this, is, <laughs> this is the final This Is How Office Hours of 2023, and we are looking forward to seeing all of you and celebrating with you tomorrow. Thanks to Will Ippen for producing. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, live streaming and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. I'm not as fat as I sound. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>